0: Idea of suffering, the idea of trials. Um, it's a book that shows that life is not always full of happiness and joy, and, um, but it gives us uh, instruction within that struggle of, of how to approach it, how to think about it, how to live live our lives, and. It's actually, I think, a very, um, you want know, to use the term human book in terms of perhaps you look around sometimes and you struggle and say, you know, life's tough. Um, everything isn't always just hunky dory. And because um, and sometimes we're given the impression if you're a believer, life is just supposed to be rah, 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 fun, fun, fun. And every day you just wake up and click your heels together and do a little jig and dance in the air. And sometimes I "I don't wake up and feel that way all the time. And I think this book uh, deals with that kind of issue that uh, a lot of times in life we have struggles. We have hard times. And um, so we're looking at that as we go through this book. And what I find fascinating in this book is it emphasizes several times we're aliens, we're we're, um, we're here briefly, life is passing us by, and it encourages us to focus on the promises of God, but promises for the most part which are future, which are in eternity. Uh, In the very first chapter it talks about, um, uh, Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So this idea that our ultimate um, blessing and happiness is going to be in eternity with Christ, not necessarily in this life. Not that we can't have joy in this life, but it's it's not a promise. It's not a guarantee. And as we've seen in First Peter, it starts out with saying, we rejoice greatly in this promise of the future. And then in chapter 1 it says, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. And again, the book ends with that same theme in chapter 5 where it says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish it. So, um, it's not necessarily a happy thought, but it says in this life you may suffer. And it uses that phrase for a little while. Um, and sometimes we even talk about if this life was on a graph, it would be like a little dot on a piece of paper and eternity stretches off you know, into the unknown future. That's hard for us to deal with sometimes. Because right now is what we're living in. Right now is what we're struggling in. And uh, Peter tells us, though, uh, like he says in chapter 1, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And um, even though that's true, that's hard. You know, when I'm struggling um, to say, okay, I'm not going to fix my hope on everything getting solved now, but on it being solved um, in the future. And so we come to that idea in chapter 2 of First Peter, and what I think Peter is showing us uh, in some of these examples here, he says, life can be a struggle in many areas. And he gives us just a few examples here. We saw last week um, the struggle of submitting to a government, to authorities over us who aren't always um, nice to us, kind to us, not doing what we want. And, So he talks about how do we live in in a world where perhaps the government, again, we know these people were under the Roman rule, which wasn't necessarily um, sympathetic to the Christian cause. Um, How can you live in that society? And now, um, today, we're going to look at a passage where he talks about servants. Living, uh, perhaps, with masters who aren't kind. Uh, Next week, we'll be looking at wives, And in the context of, what if you're a woman, but you have a husband who isn't um, Prince Charming, who isn't the wonderful guy you might dream of? How do you deal with that? And this book, it carries that kind of theme through the whole book. And what we're going to see today is, um, part of what gets us through that is looking at the example of Jesus Christ. Um, And and in this passage, it's specifically related to servants, and I think what we're going to see is our passage today in chapter 2, starting with verse 18, can be broken down into two general sections. Uh, The first one you could say is a servant who suffers, and the second section, the flip side of that, is the suffering servant, speaking of Christ himself. And I think that's tied together because of that idea of a servant faces unjust um, trials often just like the Lord um, did obviously in going to the cross and there's a very uh, close tie of what we're going to see in the second part to Isaiah 53 which is a well known passage about the suffering servant and he's going to have uh, five or six allusions looking back to that and um, saying in essence to, the, to a servant with a human master you think you've got it tough And maybe you do, but think of Jesus. He deserved nothing that happened to him. So if you're a servant of a human master saying, I don't deserve this, um, he's going to give an example of someone who deserved it even less. And just referring back to our passage last week, uh, this, this book, I believe, as far as I can recall, in these five short chapters, speaks more about the will of God than any book I can think of in terms of the phrase, the will of God. If you look back in chapter 2, verse 15, it says, For such is the will of God, that by doing, by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. And it's going to talk in here about the will of God. Um, we tend to think the will of God is neat things, getting things out of want. In this book, the will of God is referred to most often as perhaps it's God's will, that you suffer. And um, that's not something we're drawn to. Um, For instance, you can look at uh, chapter 3, verse 17. It says, For it is better, if God should will it, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. Then over in chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore those who also... Suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Well, that's really not what we go to scripture wanting to see that, you know, the will of God tied to suffering. But it says that very often is the case. Um, And so we're given these promises at the very beginning of the book. um, You know, as told to rest our hope on the future promises for us in heaven... And that brings to my mind the idea in chapter 11 of Hebrews, we're told, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And down in verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him so it's interesting to me, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, but things I haven't seen and we all know in chapter 11 it goes through all this list of uh, well-known people from scripture and then it ends in verse 39 of Hebrews 11, and all these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect, and so I think uh, it, it's referring to a real struggle here is when I'm in tough times in whatever realm in my life it's really hard to believe that God is there that he cares but we're told here in Hebrews it's the assurance of things hoped for but things I haven't seen we're hoping for this future, this promise that we're given but we have no guarantee of it other than God's word And down in verse 6, where it says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. So it's impossible to please God without faith. And what's interesting, what it says to me is, For he who comes to God must believe first that he is, that God even exists. Sometimes maybe you lay in bed at night and look at the ceiling, and you think, am I a fool? Is God even there? And it says here that the beginning of faith is actually believing that God is. And then beyond that, that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You know, So the starting point is, do I really believe and trust that God exists and that he cares about me, that he's a rewarder of me? You know, so when we're in 1 Peter, seeing these promises, but in the context of First Peter, in the midst of suffering and trials, it's very human to go, I don't know. You know, it says God cares, but I don't see it. And I don't feel it. But Scripture says that's the start of faith, is just like all these examples that we have, these Old Testament saints, they live lives where they never, in their human life on earth, saw the promises. Those promises were for the future. And we, in a sense, live that same way. We're told, again, that we're aliens, since we're passing through. Our real promises aren't that we're going to be rich, that we're going to have our dream house, that we're going to marry the perfect person that our job is just going to be unbelievably um, make us prosperous Uh, all these things that's not uh, the promises we're given the promises we're given have to do with um, God's graciousness in dealing with our sin promising us a time in eternity with him so what's in a way strange here is he's dealing with people in the here and now here's what you're experiencing now and how he comforts them is saying Look back to what Christ did and look ahead to what he's got promised for you. But Peter never says, but don't worry, it's all going to get better now. And and that's what most what we want. We want someone to come and say, don't worry, like if we know someone's going through a hard time, our natural human reactions, we want to rush in and say, don't worry, it's going to get better. Peter doesn't do that. He doesn't say to them, don't worry It's all going to work out. It will work out, he says, in eternity. But it might not work out in this life. And that's a hard pill to swallow sometimes. So now as we come to our our verses here, in verse 18 of chapter 2, it said, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And oftentimes this passage is talking about servants or slaves and we say, well, we don't really have that today. So we apply it um, often to, okay, in your employment, to your, to your the people you work for. But I got thinking about this, even in our fellowship here. I don't want to say we're old, but there's not that many people here who work for somebody. You know, sometimes I think, you know, I'm the last man. on You know, just like some of the prophets, I'm the last man uh, serving you, God. Sometimes I think I'm the last guy that actually has to go to work. As, as everybody retires and doesn't have to deal with, you know, having a person over them. What's what's a little interesting here? This word servants is actually not the normal word for servants. It's a rarely used word, and it really means a house servant, someone that's part of a household, a servant. Um, and so, um, like Cornelius, when he wanted to send um, for Peter said he called one of his faithful servants. It was a house servant and sent him. And uh, we're told uh, in Romans we should not judge another man's servant Well, it means his house servant. And so here it's talking about people who probably work within a household and it says to be submissive to them. And the word masters here is actually the word where we get the word despot from. So the idea is more of an authoritarian kind of ruler, but it says some of them are good and gentle. Some people do have masters who are, are thoughtful, kind, and but he says not all. And he says, but you be submissive also to those who are unreasonable. And this word unreasonable actually is another rarely used word, but it means crooked. It's the word where we get our word um, scoliosis from, which means a crooked spine. So it says, you might have a master who's crooked. He's just bad. He's just evil. And in verse 19, it goes on and says, For this finds favor, for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So it says basically, if you're punished because you did something wrong, and you patiently do it, big deal. You deserved your punishment. But he says where do you receive favor or grace from God is if you're punished and you're doing right. If you're maybe your master is accusing you of things, and you didn't do it, and you did anything wrong. Um, for instance, we have an example in a sense in. in a, Joseph in the Old Testament and mm-hmm. Potiphar's wife accused him of something he didn't do. So Joseph went and again when you think of trusting God, I, I try to put these my mind on these people. Joseph's own brothers sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt and finally he gets in a situation where things are going well in a sense as a slave and Potiphar's house. She accuses him of trying to rape her. He ends up in prison. So I mean You think, how is Joseph supposed to really look to trust God? It's that kind of example. We look at Daniel. He's carried off in bondage to Babylon. Uh, Many or most of our heroes in Scripture didn't necessarily have things going great for them. I don't think you'd look at Joseph and say, Boy, Joseph, what a life. You know, your brothers, your own kin sold you into slavery. You know, you're thrown in prison in Egypt. Now we know in the end things worked out a little better, but it didn't start that way for a long time. And so here we're told, if you're a servant trying to be submissive and respectful to your master, because it says be submissive to your master with all respect. Sometimes we can do what someone says, but it's not very respectful. And um, I remember the story of a little kid sitting at a table um, where his parents say, you can't leave the table till you finish your peas, and you got to sit there till you finish your peas. And he says, okay, I'm sitting here, but on the inside I'm standing up. And, but that idea, he's doing what they told him to do, but not respectfully. And he says, um, for what credit is, is, is there when you sin and are harshly treated, and in verse 20, that word harshly treated actually is the word for fist. The verb there is the word for fist. And it's the idea of when someone fists you. In other words, pounds you with their fist. So harshly treated here isn't just your master saying, you did a bad job. This is where they're beating you up. And what's interesting, and I think it's on purpose here, because we're going to get to the example of Christ in the second half of our passage. And it talks about his suffering. This is the same word that's used of Christ twice in the Gospels when he was being subjected to um brutality by those questioning him before his crucifixion it says they were spitting on him it says and beating him in the face it's the same word they're punching him and so here um I think the tie in is he's saying to a servant okay you're doing right and you're even being beat up for it by your master and he's gonna a few verses later he said someone else had that same thing happened to him it was Jesus himself and um So he says, but if when you do what is right, and that theme goes through the book, doing what is right, doing what is right. And what's interesting to me is in the book of 1 Peter, in the context of suffering, there's very little in here about talking. It's the word behavior is used here more than anywhere else in the epistles. The idea of doing good. It's your actions. We have the saying, a picture is worth a thousand words. When you're subservient to someone, Often you're not allowed to speak. you're not allowed to really defend yourself and um, the only place in here where really the person is referred to as talking is let's see, where it says if someone asks you for the reason for the hope within you but it's in the context of antagonistic people asking you, why are you so um, hopeful? And it says in verse 15 of chapter 3, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. This isn't someone happily saying, gee, you're a Christian, tell me about it. Again, if you look at the context, In the verse before and the verse after, this is antagonistic people. Maybe in essence, someone might be beating you, saying, "Now again, tell me why you're a Christian." This isn't some happy question. This is a mean question. And but it says, "Be ready to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, even in the context of suffering." Because our, our, you know, for me, if someone's like beating me or accusing me says tell me again why you're a Christian. You know, my in myself I'm going to say you're going to get yours someday. The Lord's going to really get you. You're going to pay for this. That's my natural desire. It says even in that context when I'm being perhaps beaten and accused unjustly, I should still be gentle and reverent. And so this person here uh, in chapter 2 under a perhaps cruel master, is told to submit, to be respectful, and says this finds favor with God. And then we get into the second half of our passage in verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you. You have been called for this purpose, perhaps to suffer. Again, that's not what we want to hear. And it says... You know, part of our purpose sometimes as a Christian is to suffer. to, uh, And sometimes our witness is just in our behavior, how we respond. Uh, I don't want to take anybody else's thunder, but again, if you flip to chapter 3, when it's talking in our passage next week about a wife with a husband who's not obedient to God's word, it says, to win him in verse 1, without a word, by what? By your words, by what you say to them. Says no. By your behavior, by the behavior of their wives. It's, it says as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And it talks about winning him over without a word. So the, throughout the book, that idea—doing of doing right, your behavior. Um, it's not always the case. Sometimes we do need to speak, but often in the times, especially of suffering, our job is just to be uh, gentle, respectful. To not um, fight back. And that's what we're going to see here with the example of Jesus. In verse 23, we're told, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. That's what I would want to do. If someone's cussing you out or yelling at you, our natural response is to yell right back. Oh, yeah? You think that? Well, let me tell you a few things. That's what we want to do. And he's going to give us this example of Christ he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Um, it's interesting to me, even when you look at the fruits of the spirit and the, and the deeds of the flesh, how much of it is like well, the fruits of the spirit is joy, peace, gentleness. The deeds of the flesh are things like being a fighter, being angry, you know, someone who can't control himself. And you carry that over into our list of qualities for elders. A whole lot of the qualities aren't knowledgeable, Bible scholar. You know, can run rings around anybody with the Bible. It's things like not argumentative, you know, not a brawler. And it's talking about character traits: being gentle, being kind. Um, so even as a um, a leader, we see all through Christ's life. Obviously, his ministry, and even up to the end, you never see him yelling at people, arguing with people. You know. Saying, I'm God, I'll tell, I'm going to put you straight. And, um, and that's the example here we have. And this again, like I mentioned, refers back to Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant in the Old Testament. And it says in verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So it's interesting that uh, our example... For how to deal with tough times in our life, is how did Jesus deal with that? And like it says here, He left us an example. This word "example" this is the only place it's used. It literally says it's to underwrite something, to write underneath something. Some people say it's like the idea of like we might take tracing paper and like little kids are trying to teach them to write. You would have the, the 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 grammar and you put the paper over and tell them to trace that. It's sort of saying he left us this example to follow, and literally to trace and copy it. And um, obviously, kids don't do that anymore, because if you looked at the way people sign things, like I do at the post office, no one can write anything anymore. A signature today is—it's just a scratch. It's—you know—my kids laugh at me because you can actually read my signature, and they go, "Dad, you're so out of it." And um, you know, no one writes like that anymore. And, but here we're told to be to follow Christ's example. In essence, in penmanship, we want to should try to follow good penmanship. In life, we have the example of Christ. We should try to emulate that. And we it tells us here he left us this example for us to follow. Literally, it says in his footsteps to 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 trace his steps in terms of how we respond to things. And in verse 22, a, a direct quote from Isaiah 53. He who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So the idea that this is a sinless person, this is someone that you could find nothing wrong and nothing to punish him for, and yet he suffered. And it says in verse 23, as we read, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So he turned his soul over... To the Lord, and we're told um, part of our job, when we're suffering, is not to think I've got to figure a way out of this. I've got to figure it with you, but it's to trust my soul to God. And that's how you do. It's hard to basically say I'm going to zip my lip, shut my mouth. You know, I want to really tell this person off, but no, I'm just going to trust God to deal with this situation. That's a very hard thing to do. You know. He goes on, though, and says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. So it says, here it goes beyond his example to actually what he did for us. He bore, this is where it means to carry up. He carried our sins up to the cross. Uh, he 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 took our sins um, In verse 21, if you look back, it says he suffered not for himself. It says he suffered for you. Here it says he bore our sins. He carried our sins to the cross. And so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So he paid that penalty uh, for us. And for by his wounds you were healed. And if you want to flip back to Isaiah 53, this is a verse I think sometimes um, people struggle with. And they, they want it to be a physical healing. By his wounds you are healed. I think in the context it's talking about by his wounds, by his stripes, by his bruises. It brought spiritual healing in terms of our salvation. And if you look at Isaiah 53, it talks about, it says um, in verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. For he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. I think it's pretty obvious in the context here. It's talking about our sins he carried to the cross. It's our iniquities. It's not talking about physical things here. It's saying uh, we're healed spiritually. Through what he does, and if you look at verse six, we'll begin to in a minute. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. So we are in 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 chapter two. We are in the role of the sheep. He's we're going to see. He's in the role of the shepherd. We've all gone astray. We've all wandered away, and and he's going to tell us now we've been brought back to the shepherd and. In verse 25 says, For you will continually strain like sheep. That's again tying it back in to Isaiah 53. Our tendency is to wander. Our tendency is to stray. Our tendency, we were just talking about it in Sunday school this morning. Uh, We're really big on saying, Lord, I'm there for you. I'm going to follow you. But real quick, we forget and stray away. And here we're told, You were continually strained like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd." And guardian of your of your souls, Christ, of course, is the great shepherd. And actually, here it says, "Now you have returned to the shepherd." That verb is actually in the in the in the Greek; it's a passive verb. You know, so it's not so much that I've returned, but that I've been returned. Now, when we look at the parable of the um, lost sheep, Jesus said, "You know, who has you know basically a hundred sheep and loses one?" Well, who goes looking, the sheep or the shepherd? It's the shepherd goes and finds the sheep and brings him back. So when we stray, we tend not to be the ones who go looking for God. He goes and looks for us. In fact, I found a passage I just found very interesting. If you flip back to Psalm 119, this just jumped out at me when I was looking at it the other day. We, of course, know Psalm 119 is this wonderful long song all about God's word, God's commandments. God's, it's phrased in so many different ways uh, and, and talked about following him. Um, we all know how can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word. And throughout this book, there's phrases like that. What's interesting to me... So this book is... The psalm is going on and on about... I love God's word. It's how I keep my way pure. Um, how I follow him. But what jumped out at me... Is turned to the very end of the psalm. It says... Verse 170... Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Let my lips utter praise. For you teach me your statutes. Let my tongue sing of your word, for all your commandments are righteous. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. So he's saying, God, I just want to follow you, help me do that. And he says, in verse 74, "I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is mighty. I think this guy's got it together. This guy is really going good. And then he says, in verse 75, Let my soul live that it may praise you, and let your ordinances help me. But after all these wonderful things, this all ends, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. So, even this guy who's looking at God's Word, delighting in God's Word, says at the very end, I know I'm prone to wonder. And he says, I've gone astray like a lost sheep, and says, Seek your servant. So, he's basically saying, to God as a shepherd. I love your law, I want to follow you, basically, but I don't always succeed. I struggle, I fail, I wander away. He's in the answer, do not forget your commands. He says, even though I'm trying to live for you, trying to love your word, I slip and I fall. And so it just struck me that after all that, he says, I've wandered away like a lost sheep. And here in Second Peter two, we have that picture of we are all lost sheep, we're all wondering. And he says, For you continually strain like sheep. That idea. And the idea continues. It's an ongoing thing, you know. It just it's not one it doesn't say one time you slip. It says it's a continual way of life that you slip. It doesn't mean you're not trying to fall, but in our humanness we slip. It says, But now you have returned or been returned to the shepherd and guardian. Of your souls. The one who takes care of the sheep obviously is the shepherd. He leads the sheep to food. He um, guides them. And here it mentions that the guardian of your souls. If you flip over to chapter 4 verse 19 we're told therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God that's these people. That's us. Sometimes it says, "Shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right in the midst of suffering." I can say I don't see the end of this. I don't see the way out of it. But I'm just going to trust you, God. I'm going to trust my soul to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. So all I can do is try to do what is right. Trust God. And trust my soul to Him and just believe like, like those verses from Hebrews believe that he exists believe that he cares believe that he wants to reward me and guide me and that's the God we have even in this case when he's talking about a servant maybe being abused by a master he says what you can do is look at the example of Christ uh, turn your life over him trust him you don't necessarily see right now how it's all going to work out but we're told there's wonderful things planned for us in the future. And so that's just what I wanted to look at this morning is that idea of um, we have these examples, you know, sort of some of the worst case scenarios of uh, possible abuse, possible suffering. And it says no matter what your situation, you can look to the shepherd and guardian of your souls and trust that he cares. That He loves you, that He wants the best for you, even though uh, we don't hear. Because if I go, if I go on sight, I want to reject God. We, we remember the, the example of Job, who said, "Even though He's slaying me, what? Yet will I serve Him or worship Him?" Job had everything going wrong, and he still came to <coughs> and that's, I mean, that's the hard thing. That's what we find that we struggle with, but that's the, the admonition often in scripture. You know, again, if things are going well, you hear people some sometimes say like, if if I got a raise tomorrow at work, which isn't going to happen. But and they say, you know, you're the employee of the year. We're doubling your salary, and all of a sudden, the mortgage company calls and says we made a mistake. You paid your house off ten years ago. We're not only going to Crossed off. We're giving you a refund of a lot of the money you paid. If my doctor calls and says, "You know, I said you had some physical problems. I was looking at the wrong chart. That was Jim Baumgartner. You're, you're in great shape. You know, what do I say then? I go, God is good. Praise the Lord. Well, anybody can do that when everything's just going wonderful. You know, the real test, what the world is going to look at. Here is when your behavior because it says later on here it talks about when people look at you and they're going to say in chapter 4 it says talk about the people you used to run around with it says in all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they will align you you know basically saying what's wrong? You used to like to go out and party with us and have a good time. We had a lot of good fun together. What went wrong with you? I mean, that's the world saying to us, you know, they don't understand. But this book says part of our role is to be a witness to them, not just in saying, you know, the gospel, but just how we live. How we're different. Not different to be weird, but different in terms of the way we approach life, the way the values just like Don saying this morning, being rich toward God, you know, a lot of people, if if they're going to look at you and say, you know, why do you whatever support missions or support your church or or do whatever, you know, you should use all your money, you know, like like the rich man there, build barns, store it up, and uh, you know, we should live a life that is distinctly different from the world because we do have this uh, savior who cares about us, who is going to bring us safely home based on his promises. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you for your word, for your promises, even when uh, we feel like sometimes we're drowning in in situations and things that aren't going the way we hoped or the way we'd like. But we rest assured and trust that you're overseeing it all you understand it all, you know us, you love us, you care about us, and that you will bring us uh, to your home and your blessings in your good time. And we thank you for this. Amen. Why don't we stand? Because this next song is from our study this morning, Standing on the Promises. and Like it's always been said, we can't sing Standing on the Promises while sitting on the premises. (laughs)